Let's start with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day, this wonderful day that you have made, crisp and cold and clear. And we thank you for uh, the Lord's Day, the, the, the opportunity that we have to gather together as, the, as your people and to, to worship you together. Uh, we thank you for this particular opportunity to gather around your word and to study what it says, how it reveals who you are and how it reveals your great plan of redemption from beginning to end. We ask, Lord, as we gather around your word, that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit so that we would have open hearts and minds and really be able to, uh, to soak in what you're trying to teach us from your word and, and, uh, and furthermore to apply it to our lives so it affects how we live. We thank you, Lord, for your great love for us demonstrated throughout history, but especially in the love that it took to send your one and only Son, Jesus, to die on that cross for our sins. And we pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. All right, here we are, part number 20. So that means this is a 39-part series through the book of Revelation. So part number 20 means we're actually past halfway. As of, as of today, we, we passed the halfway mark in our study of the revelation of Jesus Christ. So uh, today we're gonna, the, the, the lesson's going to be titled Satanic Slaughter. And this is going to be the sixth trumpet. So we've been following through these judgments that the Lord is uh, meeting out. And we started with uh, seven seals. And then when we got to the seven seals, there were seven trumpets. And we are now on the sixth trumpet. And then we're going to see in the seventh trumpet, there are going to be uh, seven bowls, seven bowl judgments that are poured out on the earth. And so uh, we've gone through the... We're in the period of the tribulation from chapter 6 to chapter 19. And the second and it's a seven-year period of tribulation. And the second half of that is called the Great Tribulation, the last three and a half years. And that's where we are right now. Uh, so we're going to talk about this sixth trumpet. We're going to talk about the release of demons, more demons, uh, the return of death. So the, the previous one, there was just uh, uh, torment, and now there's going to be death. And, uh, and then there's going to be a reaction of defiance, believe it or not, uh, by the people that, are, are, that remain after this sixth trumpet. Uh, but first, let's do a little review of where we were last week. So last week, we did the fifth trumpet. Uh, the first part of chapter 9. And so we had the, f the fifth angel, the presence angel, sounded his trumpet. Um, and then John says he saw a star from heaven fall. We talked about the fact that this is uh, talking about Satan. And there's a description of the fall of Satan in Isaiah chapter 14. Isaiah chapter 14, a very interesting chapter. It starts out talking about a human king. But then it transitions into talking about the fall of Satan. Uh, and Satan's given keys to open the abyss, this bottomless pit, and out comes uh, these demons. Um, so as, as the bottomless pit, uh, the abyss is open, there's smoke and a great furnace, and it darkens the sun, and uh, there's this vast billowing of, of smoke, and, and also all these demons coming out. Um, and so there's a swarm of demons, and John, in his vision, likens them to locusts swarming out. 
and he's got a description that's that's kind of uh, that's unbelievable. It's uh, he, remember John is seeing this in a vision. He's seeing things that are indescribable, and then he's trying to describe the indescribable, doing the best he can. And he, there's he, there's a reference to locusts, and there's several references to scorpions with these demons that are coming up out of the pit. And the demons are specifically focused on tormenting men, uh, not what normal locusts do. They're not to touch the green grass or the uh, any of the trees, but only men, uh, and only certain men, only men that do not have the seal of God on their forehead. And they're not permitted to kill anyone. So there's limits to what they can do. The Lord has placed limits on what these demons can do. Not allowed to, to kill anyone, and they're only allowed five months in which to torment the unbelievers. So they're not allowed to touch believers. They're not allowed to kill anyone, and they're only, they only get five months. So very specific limits that the Lord places on what these demons are allowed to do. And so there's a description of the appearance that he uses. Um, the appearance was like horses, and their heads have things that look like a crown, and their faces look like men's faces, and women's hair, and lion's teeth, and a blessed breastplate of iron. And so we came up with an artist's rendering of what something like that could look like. Uh, you see a, uh, a man's face and women's hair, and a lion's teeth, and a thing that looks like a crown, and an iron breastplate, and a thing like a scorpion, and it's a locust. Um, so I don't know what these things looked like, but John's seeing something really utterly bizarre that these demons look like, and he's doing the best he can to describe it. Uh, so there are three times they're compared to scorpions, um, and at the end he says that they also have a king over them. Uh, the king is the angel of the abyss, so there's some sort of uh, king over the demons that come up out of this abyss, and he gets a name in Hebrew, Abaddon, in Greek, Apollyon, and both those words mean destroyer. Yeah, so, uh, and at the end, so this is the, we, we've heard about uh, these three, uh, at the end of the fir first four trumpets, we had an eagle flying through the sky that said, whoa, 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 to the inhabitants of the earth, because of the trumpet blasts of the other three angels and so now we've had the first of those woes the fifth trumpet and at the end of this description of the fifth trumpet we get a reminder of what was said in chapter 8 verse 13 that there are three of these woes coming and that means there's two more after the the fifth trumpet and so that brings us to the sixth trumpet any questions about where we've been well, we, we talked about last week, especially with the fifth trumpet. Okay, uh, so today we're gonna we're gonna go and in, move into the sixth trumpet. So, if you would open your Bibles to Revelation chapter nine, and we're gonna start in verse thirteen. So, Revelation chapter nine, verse thirteen, in your Bible or your device. And I encourage you to follow along, and uh, as we go through these uh, descriptions and the vision, and uh, I'll, I'm going to be going through what some of the commentaries say about these visions. Make sure you keep your eye on the actual scripture. Make sure you keep your eye on the actual scripture because um, I'm going to be talking about things that are um, my, my best estimate of what the interpretation of these things are based on my reading of commentaries by Thomas and MacArthur and others. But remember to keep your eyes focused on the scripture while we do this because the scripture is really what counts. Um, okay. 
so let's read. Let's read what the scripture says, verse 13 to verse 21. Then the sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God. One saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who were bound at the great river Euphrates. And the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and day and month and year were released, so that they would kill a third of mankind. The number of the armies of the horsemen was 200 million. I heard the number of them. And this is how I saw in the vision the horses and those who sat on them. The riders had breastplates the color of fire and of hyacinth and of brimstone. And the heads of the horses were like the heads of lions. And out of their mouths proceeded fire and smoke and brimstone. A third of mankind was killed by these three plagues by the fire, the smoke, and the brimstone which proceeded out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails. For their tails are like serpents and have heads, and with them they do harm. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, so as not to worship demons and the idols of gold and of silver and of brass and of stone and of wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders, nor of their sorceries, nor of their immorality, nor of their thefts. Very sobering. Um, and so this is the sixth trumpet, uh, the sixth angel, and we're going to go through this uh, in detail. First, I'll give you another uh, couple of paragraphs from uh, uh, John MacArthur's commentary uh, just before he launches into this particular part of Scripture. Uh, MacArthur says this, Mankind lies between two parables powerful opposing spiritual spheres, each seeking to, to conform people to itself. No one is neutral in the cosmic battle. Everyone is either part of the domain of darkness or of the kingdom of God's beloved Son. Colossians 1.13 As they yield to one sphere or the other, people become the companions of God or the companions of Satan. The companions of holy angels or the companions of demons. The companions of saints or the companions of sinners. To doubt that reality is the gravest mistake any person can make. Because the, making the wrong choice results in eternal disaster. God offers people the life-giving gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Satan and the forces of hell lure people to their destruction by dangling before them the passing pleasures of sin, Hebrews 11.25. The loud voices of hell have always tried to drown out the preaching of the gospel. There is coming a day when the siren call of hell will be so loud as to be all but irresistible. The people of that time will ignore the repeated powerful preaching of the gospel and the warning conveyed by terrifying, devastating judgments from God. Having rejected all offers of grace and mercy, they will see death come upon mankind through the trumpet and bowl judgments, which will deliver death on a scale unprecedented in human history. Yet even then, they will not repent. In fact, they will curse God. People at that time will have made the irrevocable choice to side with the forces of hell. While there will be divine judgments throughout the seven-year tribulation, they will escalate during the last three and one-half years, the time Jesus called the Great Tribulation in Matthew 24. 
Those judgments will unfold sequentially in three telescoping series, the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls. Out of the seventh seal comes the seven trumpet judgments. Out of the seventh trumpet comes the seven bowl judgments. Like the fifth trumpet, the sounding of the sixth trumpet heralds another more severe demonic attack on sinful mankind. This attack, unlike the previous one, brings death. So remember, there was only torment in the previous one. Now we get death. And so this is all part of a sequence that started in uh, Revelation 8.13 with the eagle flying and saying, whoa, 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 uh, that because of the trumpet blast of the other three angels. So this is after the first four trumpets, uh, there's this idea that there's three woes attached to the fourth, the fifth, sixth, and seventh trumpet. And so the fifth trumpet was the demon locust hordes out of the abyss, and now we get 200 million demonic riders from the Euphrates with the sixth trumpet. Uh, so let's take a look. Let's dive in uh, and take a look at what the scripture says here. Uh, verse 13, <clears throat> Then the sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice. And where does the voice come from? It comes from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God. And that voice says, one saying to the sixth, to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. And so this is the sixth angel and the sixth trumpet of these sequential trumpet judgments. And John hears a voice. Uh, the Greek text literally says one voice, stressing that John heard a single solitary voice. There's all these, you know, there's, lot, there's lots around this throne. There's all these angels, and there's these, these presence angels, and there's uh, the elders, and there's the best hosts. And, but he hears this one single voice coming out of the altar, is what he's saying here. And the Greek makes the stress on one uh, here. Um, and this voice, uh, so it could be the lamb, because the lamb is right there, um, or it could be the voice of an angel whom John sees standing right next to the golden altar of incense. We saw that in the last chapter, that there was a separate angel, not the seven angels, that was right there at the altar of incense as well. So it's one of those two, either the lamb or that other angel. <clears throat> So identifying that source of that voice is not possible from the text. It doesn't tell us exactly who it was, but it does tell us where it came from. Uh, it came from the four horns, so it came from right in the middle of this altar. Uh, horns are the small protrusions from each corner of the altar, of the golden altar, which is before God. Uh, John had already seen this particular altar, uh, which is the heavenly counterpart to the Old Testament altar of incense. He had seen it twice already previously in the vision. Uh, and so that altar of incense was first in the tabernacle, and then when they built the temple, it was in the temple. Uh, and it was the place where for the burning of incense, and it was right outside the Holy of Holies, right by the veil to the Holy of Holies. Um, there's, a, there's a description of it in Exodus chapter 30. Uh, so Exodus chapter 30, verse 1 through 10, is a description of this altar. Uh, moreover, you show the, the, the copy, the copy on earth. The real one's in heaven, copies on earth. Make sure we have that straight. Real one in heaven, copy on earth. Um, moreover, you shall make an altar as a place for burning incense. You shall make it of acacia wood. Its length shall be a cubit, and it's with a cubit. That's a really small thing. A cubit is 18 inches. So this thing is only 18 inches by 18 inches. It's little. And not, it's not huge. Little. 18 inches by 18 inches. Uh, it shall be square, and its height shall be two cubits. So it's taller than it is wide. It's 36 inches tall. It's only 18 inches square. Uh, Weird-looking thing. 
Uh, it, its horns shall be of one piece with it, so it does horns on the corners, just like the one in heaven does. You shall overlay it with pure gold, its top and its sides all around, and its horns, and you shall make a gold molding all around it for it. So you shall make two gold rings for it under the molding, and you shall make them on its two side walls on opposite sides, and they should be holders for poles with which you'll carry it. So poles to go through these rings so they can carry this thing because they were moving it around. They would take the tabernacle down, they would move it to a new place, set it up, put the, put all this, the equipment up there, including this altar. But uh, So God designed it so it could be moved around when it was in the tabernacle. You shall put this altar in the front of the veil that is near the Ark of the Testimony. So in front of the veil. So there's a veil of the Holy of Holies. The Ark's in there. This is right in front of that. Um, in front of the mercy seat that is over the Ark of the Testimony, where I will meet with you. Aaron shall burn fragrant incense on it. He shall burn it every morning when he trims the lamps. When Aaron trims the lamps at twilight, he shall burn incense. There shall be perpetual incense before the Lord throughout your generations. You shall not offer any strange incense on this altar. So if you recall in the Old Testament, there was an instance of strange incense or strange fire that Aaron's sons tried to offer on this thing, and they were wiped out. Um, uh, or burn off, and you should not no strange incense or burn offerings or meal offering. Or you should not pour out a drink offering on it. Aaron shall make atonement on its horns once a year. He shall make atonement of it on it with the blood of the sin offering of atonement once a year throughout your generations. It is most holy to the Lord. So that's the description of the copy on earth, and then the real thing is up in heaven, and that's what John is seeing. But John would have been familiar with the altar of incense from the Old Testament. And so he could recognize it. When he sees it in his vision, oh yeah, I know that. That's the altar of incense. That's the real one. I've, I've, I know about the copy of it from my reading of the Old Testament. So the voice comes from this altar, uh, from the surface of the altar, between the four protruding corners, and it commands the sixth angel. So this, whatever, whoever this voice is has authority to command angels commands the sixth angel who had the trumpet release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates so that the four angels are bound indicates that these are probably demons there's no indication that that holy angels are ever bound for any reason no we never have that in scripture of, of holy angels being bound and so these are most likely fallen angels that have been bound there um, most likely the, these demons have been bound and now the, the, the lamb, Christ, orders the sixth angel to, to release them because now it's time for them to do the thing that God has uh, planned for them for a long, long time and now the, the hour has come. His control, so God's control over de demonic forces is complete. They are bound and loosed at his command. Uh, the this the the word bound there is in the perfect uh, tense the participle uh, perfect tense of the participle uh, translated bound implies that these four angels are bound in the past with continuing results in, in other words they were they have been bound they were bound they have been bound 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 released that's what the sense of this Greek term is so these are angels that have been bound in the past for continuing, 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 and then released for a certain purpose. Um, and so they're bound, they were in a state or condition of bondage until God's determined time came for them to be released to execute their function as instruments of divine judgment.
So the site of the imprisonment of the angels is the great river Euphrates, the longest and most important river in the Middle East, and it figures prominently in the Old Testament. We, there's lots and lots about the river Euphrates in the Old Testament. There's lots of the Old Testament empires that interact with Israel, are um, bound by the river Euphrates. It's part of their boundaries, part of their empire uh, for most of the, the history of the Old Testament. The use of the definite article suggests that these four angels are a specific group. So it's not four angels, it's the four angels. Notice that, the four angels. So it's a specific group, it's a, a definite article, a specific group for a specific purpose. That's really what the text is bringing out here. The Greek, the tenses and the specific articles that are hidden here in the Greek suggest it's, it's a specific group of angels for a specific purpose, God's specific purpose. Uh, the precise identity of these uh, demons is not revealed, but Daniel chapter 10 does give us insight about the warfare between holy angels and demons that specifically influence nations. Uh, the demons that are exerting influence over uh, particular nations. We see that in Daniel 10. So Daniel 10 verse 13, for example, a holy angel tells Daniel, the prince of the kingdom of Persia was withstanding me for 21 days. So that prince of the kingdom of Persia is a demon, and the holy angel is battling with this demon for 21 days, he tells Daniel. Uh, then behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, so the archangel Michael comes to help the, the, the holy angel against this demon, because he, he's struggling. It's evidently a very powerful demon. He's been battling it for 21 days, and he needs the archangel Michael to come help him. Uh, for I had been left there with the kings of Persia. He's talking about demons that he battled there. And then in verse 20 of uh, uh, Daniel chapter 10, Do you understand why I came to you? But I shall now return to fight against the prince of Persia. So I am going forth, and behold, the prince of Greece is about to come. Another demon. He's going to battle another demon that's influencing the nation of Greece. There's one that's influencing Persia over here. There's one that's influencing Greece over there. And the holy angels are battling them. And that's what's revealed to Daniel there in Daniel chapter 10. So whoever they are, these four powerful fallen angels control a huge demonic army set to wage war against fallen mankind when God releases them to do so. They're bound and they can't do anything that they want to do until God says that they can and only, and then they can only do what God says that they can do. Okay, uh, continuing to verse 15. And the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and day and month and year were released so that they would kill a third of mankind. The number of the armies of the horsemen was 200 million. I heard the number of them. Death which had taken a holiday under the fifth trumpet. So men sought death under the torment, the five-month torment in the fifth trumpet. Now death returns with a vengeance. Uh, the four angels, the one bound at the river Euphrates, who had been prepared by God for this exact hour, day, and month, and year. So he had been holding them bound by his authority until he released them. Then they're released when it's time. At the precise moment in the predetermined year, the predetermined month, and the very day and the exact hour that God calls for by his sovereign plan, 
he will release these four high-ranking demons so that they can, he can use them in his ongoing judgment of the world. So he's, he's got this progressive judgment of the world, and when it comes time where God decides to judge in a particular way that uses these particular demons, then he releases them. Not before, not an hour before. And the terrifying purpose of this demon horde and these demon leaders is to kill a third of mankind. Um, the judgment of the fourth seal killed one quarter of the earth, if you remember, in chapter 6. So the fourth seal killed one third. This additional third brings the death toll from these two judgments alone to about half the earth's pre-tribulation population. So if you use the population of the earth now, it's 8 billion. So if you kill one quarter, what is that? Two billion. And what's eight billion minus two billion? Six billion. And what's one third of six billion? Two billion. So it's another two billion. And so you're left with four billion if when you started with eight billion. So it's a half. Half the population is killed in these two alone. That leaves aside everything else that's happened. But just those two, um, the fourth seal and the sixth trumpet kill a quarter and then a third which adds up to a half if you start with 8 billion you'd be down to 4 billion so this is 2 billion dead in this one event to slaughter 2 billion people will require an unimaginably powerful force uh, and so John reports the number of this force the armies of the horsemen uh, as 200 million um, that's likely an exact number because we've seen him use general numbers for vast hordes and hordes that nobody can count for example in chapter 5 and chapter 7 so when, when he wants to use a general number he uses a general number this is, sounds like a really specific number um, and as if anticipating skepticism about the size of that number John emphatically he insists that the, I heard the number I heard it it was 200 million and I heard it uh, so it seems like, from the way the text is talking about it, this is talking about an exact number, or, or very close to an exact number, something like that. Not, not a vague number like he's used before. In addition to the demons that we've already had roaming the earth throughout history, the ones that were encountered by Jesus and encountered by Paul, um, the spiritual forces of wickedness in, holy, in heavenly places in Ephesians 6, and the innumerable bound demons that were released from the abyss in, chapter, in uh, the fifth trumpet, now we get another demon horde, a 200 million strong horde of demons. Uh, there, the, the word armies is plural the number of the armies of the horsemen so it's not an army of the horsemen it's armies and that may suggest that each of the four demon um, uh, demons gets their own army and so there's four armies and it adds up to 200 million um, but it's the armies is plural in, in the text uh, so some have suggested that this uh, is the human army referred to in chapter 16 and led by the kings of the east. Um, and usually when they talk about that, they say, well, the Chinese army numbered 200 million in the 1970s. However, <clears throat> there's no reference made to the size of the army of the kings of the east in chapter 16. Uh, further, that army arrives in the scene during the sixth bowl judgment, which takes place during the seventh trumpet, not the sixth trumpet. So that army comes later. 
There's a big human army, but it comes later. It doesn't come now. Uh, there may be, at that time, an existing standing army of 200 million. Who knows? Uh, but it seems unlikely that a human army that big could be transported all over the Earth to kill 2 billion people. Um, because you co it couldn't just be in one place. It would have to spread out over the whole world to kill 2 billion people. Um, and that seems unlikely that a human army could do that. Uh, and keep in mind that the Earth's population has been drastically reduced. And there's no reason to believe that armies won't be part of the people that are dead from the, the, uh, the sick seal, for example. Um, so, and, and the description of this army does not seem like a description of a human army when we get to the description of what they, John says they look like. So I think that's not correct. I don't think it's correct that this is the same army that it's talking about in, in chapter 16. Uh, the figurative language used to describe the army's horses suggests that this is a supernatural rather than a human force, as does the fact that it is commanded by four newly released demons. Uh, then continuing along, in, chapter, in verse 17, uh, we get this... Uh, and this is how I saw in the vision the horses and those who sat on them. The riders had breastplates the color of fire and of hyacinth and brimstone, and the heads of the horses are like the heads of lions, and out of their mouths proceeded fire and smoke and brimstone. So this is another description of something that uh, John is actually seeing in a vision, and he's trying the best he can in human language to describe this supernatural vision. Uh, so, but before he describes the horses, which are the actual agents of destruction, John briefly describes those who sat on the horses. Um, he noted that the riders had breastplates, the color of fire and of hyacinth and of brimstone. Um, the color of fire is red, uh, hyacinth is dark blue or black, like smoke, and brimstone is a sulfurous yellow, describing the rock, which when ignited produces burning flame and suffocating gas. So that's what he's trying to describe here with these colors. Uh, he's trying to, you know, the colors are the features of hell that we get in Revelation chapter 14, 19, and 20, and 21. Um, and they paint a picture of God's wrath pouring out on the sinful world through these demons. Uh, horses in scripture, as we talked about before, are associated with warfare in scripture in many different places in the Old Testament. Uh, Exodus, Deuteronomy, Joshua, 1st and 2nd Samuel, and on and on and on. Uh, but it's clear that these are not actual horses uh, from the description. Um, this is something else. This is a demon horde. Uh, and the heads of the horses were like the heads of lions, and out of their mouth proceeded fire and smoke and brimstone. So a lion-headed horse with fire and brimstone coming out of its mouth. A third of mankind was killed by these three plagues, by the fire and the smoke and the brimstone, which proceeded out of their mouths. Uh, so it God, it John's using descriptive language uh, best he can to describe what he sees in this vision, and he sees the heads, and he describes them as horses, but then he says the heads look like lions. Uh, denoting fierce, relentless, determined stalk, to stalk and slaughter their victims. Um, he, John notes three times that the demon horses killed their victims, all of which picture the violent, devastating fury of hell. Uh, they incinerated their victims with fire. They asphyxiated them with smoke and brimstone. Um, so this is like um, unleashing hell on earth. 
And then he sees the devastating results, and he describes the results he sees in the vision. And the results are that a third of mankind was killed by these three, what he calls plagues, fire, smoke, and brimstone that's coming out of the mouths of these horses that have heads like lions. Um, and so this is the word plague used here. Uh, the fire and smoke and brimstone is described as plague, using the word plague. And that word, this same Greek word for plagues, will continue to appear in the book of Revelation uh, to describe God's judgments, especially during this three and a half years of the Great Tribulation. So we'll see it again in Revelation 11, Revelation 15, chapter 16, chapter 18, chapter 21, chapter 22, described as plagues. Yes. Yeah, so, yes. So, so God, even in his judgment, is showing mercy. He's showing, um, he's giving people an opportunity. He's continuing to withhold the final judgment. So it's progressively getting worse, but he doesn't just wipe them out in a second at the very beginning of this thing. The seven-year tribulation period, the judgments become more and more severe, but he continues to give people opportunities to repent. And yet they don't, uh, which is the saddest part of this whole story. The very end of this chapter says that they hardened their hearts and they, they did not repent. Uh, yeah, just unbelievable. Watching all this happen and then continuing to harden their hearts. So we have this, this progressive outpouring of God's wrath that keeps getting more and more and more severe. Uh, by increments. Any questions so far? Yes, Tegan. So, um, it's interesting. We're going to get to some language at the very end of this passage, uh, which is which sounds pretty general, that they're not repenting. Uh, it sounds like they've stopped repenting at this point. Um, but, we know that at least... For some time during this whole period, there are people that are repenting because we have the whole bunch of martyrs that were martyred during this period of time. We have those that were saved out of the Great Tribulation that we saw before the, the altar just a minute ago. The witnesses, the witnesses we're going to get to the witnesses. The two witnesses uh, are coming up in um, chapter 14. We got... We got the 144,000 witnesses. We get the two. Yeah, they're still going. Um, we we have the the two special witnesses. We're going to get to here in a minute. Um, but it's not. It's um, it sounds very depressing. Anyway, at the end of this chapter in particular, that pen, men were not repenting, um, which is a very sobering thing to think about. That uh, and, and we have. We have similar hard-heartedness throughout the Bible. We have uh, the nation of Israel that watches God do all these miraculous things, watches God, um, you know, the, the, the plagues on Egypt and saving them with the Passover and then parting the Red Sea. And, and almost immediately they're grumbling and saying, let's go back to Egypt. Um, you know, the Back to Egypt Club was really big. And in Israel, as they're watching God miraculously save them time and time again, but they're instantly rebelling against God. I mean, really, almost no time goes by between the time that they are miraculously saved through the Red Sea, uh, they watch God destroy their enemies, and then they grumble against God and against Moses almost immediately. So that's the nature of 
a hard-hearted person, and we seem to be getting that here at the end of this chapter as well. But it's a good question, Are there is there anybody being saved at this point? Um, and it's not clear to me from this passage at the end of chapter 9 that there's still being people saved after that. Yeah. Okay, so good question. So uh, we have a, we have a seven-year period of tribulation that is... Uh, uh, that, that works itself out in seven seals, seven trumps, and seven, seven bulls. Um, and so, and, and generally that's divided into three and a half year periods. The, uh, the first part of it is the tribulation, and the second half of it is the great tribulation, the last three and a half years. Um, and most commentators put the, the dividing line from the first three and a half years to the second three and a half years at the seventh trumpet. So there's silence in heaven, and then there's going to, it's going to get much worse when you start the trumpet. So the trumpets and the seals are definitely in the second half. And so in these trumpets, we're definitely in the Great Tribulation, the three and a half. Now, some commentators want to start the, the, the Great Tribulation, the second half, in the sixth seal. Which is okay too. Um, the sixth seal is a, you know, the huge earthquake <coughs> that kills a third of mankind. They, they say, yeah, that's great tribulation when a third of mankind is killed. Uh, so it's either the, either the sixth seal or the seventh seal starts the second three and a half years. But here in these trumpets, we're definitely in the second three and a half years. So we're in the great tribulation, the second half of the seven-year tribulation. Uh, so this this thing is happening over a time span. So it's not uh, so it, it, we can read it all in you know 30 minutes. We could read through the whole tribulation, but remember that it's taking place over a time span. And for example, the fifth trumpet was five months long. Um, now we're not told how long the sixth trumpet is, how long it takes to kill two billion people, but it, it probably takes some time because the whole thing has to take seven years. And so there's been some time um, and maybe some little bit of recovery time sometimes between these judgments. Uh, but we're, in, we're firmly within that last three and a half years of tribulation. Good question. Okay, so here we go. Any, any other questions about where we've come so far? So there we go. That's a horse with a lion's head with uh, fire and brimstone coming out of the mouth and uh, something riding on top of it that has a breastplate that's made out of fire and brimstone. And, uh, so, and, and notice it has a serpent for a tail and the serpent has a head because the scripture says it has a serpent for a tail and that serpent has a head. Uh, so I don't know exactly what John saw. This is a, this is an artist rendering of maybe what, yeah, yeah, and two hundred million of them. Um, so yeah, an army of two hundred million of those um, is something like what John John saw. Um, and so uh, then we get to uh, verse 18. A third of mankind was killed by these three plagues, by the fire and the smoke and the brimstone, which proceeded out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails. For their tails are like serpents and have heads, and with them they do harm. So both the fire and smoke and brimstone come out of the mouth, and this tail like a serpent that's, uh, that's killing people. Um, not a pretty sight. And so as if it's not frightening enough already, uh, John sees more about the deadly power of the demons with the, the snake for a tail, uh, the power of the horses in their mouths, but also in their tails, he says. Oh, by the way, 
Um, he's first, so first he had likened the horses' heads to savage lions, and now he says their tails are like deadly venomous serpents that have heads, and with them they do harm. So the horses' tails were not actually serpents because the horses were not actually horses. This is something he's seeing. This is a vision he's seeing, and he's, he's kind of describing it the best way he can using familiar objects. But this is a demon thing he's seeing. Um, and he's trying to use familiar things like serpents and lions to describe something that's essentially indescribable. Um, and so that, but they, the point is they have vicious, deadly power uh, to kill a third of mankind, two billion people. Um, yeah. So these images describe the supernatural deadliness of this demon force in terms that are understood from the natural realm, things like lions and serpents. Um, unlike the scorpion stings from the previous demon assault that we had in the fifth trumpet, the snake bites inflicted by this host will be fatal. So the previous was just just uh, torment so bad that you wanted to die. Uh, now we get actual death um, from the, both the head of the lion and uh, the head looks like a lion and the tail looks like a snake. And then we get to this very sad ending here. Um, in verse 20 says, the rest of mankind, so very general, but I think this leads open the possibility that you know, 99% of the people are, are not repenting but there's a remnant. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands so as not to worship demons and the idols of gold and of silver and of brass and of stone and of wood which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And so there was not a mass revival. That's clear. Clearly this is, everybody doesn't look up and say the Lord has 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 uh, poured out his wrath, we better repent. There's not a big revival like that. But I think this probably leaves open the possibility of a small number still, uh, still a faithful remnant clinging. So the death of one-third of the Earth's remaining population will be the most catastrophic disaster to strike the Earth since the flood. So the flood killed everybody but eight. Uh, this is going to kill a third of all that are left after all the other disasters. Yet in an amazing hardness of heart, the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent. Uh, it seems unimaginable uh, that after all these years of suffering, so we're somewhere into the three and a half years of the Great Tribulation, so uh, three and a half years plus something, so maybe five years or so of at least of this uh, progressively more terrible destructions, uh, judgments from God, coupled with the powerful preaching of the gospel by the 144,000 evangelists and other believers, according to Matthew 24, the survivors will still refuse to repent. At least the great mass of them will refuse to repent. Yes, and so uh, it's, there is some mystery involved with the, with the uh, doctrine of election, um, and so, and the fact that people are naturally uh, dead in their transgressions, um, and so dead people don't repent. And so how do you become alive? How do you become spiritual alive? The regeneration of the Holy Spirit. And so it takes the regeneration of the Holy Spirit for somebody to be able to repent. Um, and so, yeah, so, uh, yes, so there's, there's some mystery there with the way the Bible describes the 
doctrine of election and the fact that uh, we're called to repent and the fact that we're called to evangelize. Um, but all those things are true. Yes, God elects, and yes, we're called to evangelize. Both. Both of those things are true. Uh, but the, but they, the vast majority will, according to Scripture, refuse to repent at this time. Yeah. And, and starting with the sixth seal judgment, there was a widespread recognition that these were judgments coming from God. Before that, it seems like there wasn't a widespread recognition that the judgments were coming from God. But in the sixth seal, we saw the widespread acknowledgement that this was judgments coming from God. Um, and so that realization is there, and yet um, the vast majority refuse to repent. Um, and so this is tragic. Um, this is very sad. Um, it's... Um, the survivors will still refuse to repent. So having failed to heed the Bible's warning, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, Hebrews chapter 4, they will perish. Tragically, they will choose to worship the dragon and the beast. We'll see that coming in, in chapter 13 instead of the lamb. So after all of this, the vast majority of people that survive this are going to worship the dragon and the beast. We'll see that in chapter 13. Um, the Antichrist rather than Christ. So, yes, very very sad and, and tragic, we see. Um, so, and, and so as John concludes this account, he lists uh, five particular areas of sin that people will cling to uh, in defiance and refuse to repent. So the first is idolatry. Um, and so uh, they didn't re repent of the works of their hands so as not to worship the demons and the idols of gold and silver and brass and stone and wood that can neither see nor hear nor walk. So ever since the fall, men have practiced idolatry, uh, worshiping the works of their hands. Uh, that phrase is used throughout Scripture to refer to idols, the works of their hands, worshiping the works of their hands. That's in Deuteronomy, 2 Kings, 2 Chronicles, Psalm, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Hosea, Micah, Haggai. This phrase, the works of their hands, worshiping the works of their hands, is a uh, scriptural method of identifying idolatry. So in ancient times, and even in some cultures today, people actually worship idols of gold and silver and brass and stone, which can either see nor hear nor walk. But to worship any idol or false deity is in fact to worship demons. That's what it says in Deuteronomy 32 and Psalm 106. And we get some other examples of that, that worshiping idols is worshiping demons. Uh, the Septuagint, for example, which is a Greek translation of the Old Testament from before the time of Christ, renders Psalm 96.5 as all the gods of the peoples are demons. The Apostle Paul declared that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons. That's 1 Corinthians 10.20. When people worship idols, gods that do not exist, demons who do exist will impersonate those gods and hold those idolaters captive to their demonic power and deception. So Paul's saying when people worship idols, what they're really worshiping is demons. That's what 1 Corinthians 10 says. False religions are not void of the supernatural. They're full of it. 
because they are the best opportunities for demons to capture souls. They are the fortresses mentioned in 2 Corinthians 10, which must be assaulted with the truth if souls are to be delivered. So, for example, look at an, an, a religion like Islam. Where did that come from? Where did the Quran come from? According to, to Muhammad, where did he get that from? An, an angel. Well, what was that really? That was a demon. It was a demon that wrote the Quran. Um, that whole this that whole religion is from a demon. That's what Muhammad says. It came from this angel, but that but no angel gives scripture contrary to the word of God, and so that was a demon, and that whole so that whole religion is based on a, a, a demon. Demon, yeah. <clears throat> Mormon said the same thing. The angel Moroni is who Joseph Smith got his Book of Mormon from, and the Book of Mormon contradicts the Scripture, so that's a demon too. So Mormonism is is based is comes from a demon as well. Um, yeah. So those are two of the largest. Uh, uh, counterfeit religions in the world today. Yeah, <clears throat> so uh, that's a good question. Th that's a good question, especially in the case of Joseph Smith. Uh, that's a longer discussion. I, I've um, I taught a, a course on comparative religions before, and I, I I took the opportunity. This was years ago to study Mormonism quite a bit. And uh, Joseph Smith is, was a very interesting character. He was a convicted peep stoner, a glass looker. Um, he, he, uh, he had a scam where he would say he could look for water to, for digging wells, and he did it by putting a, uh, a glass, uh, like, a, uh, like a, uh, a magnifying glass looking kind of thing, in a hat. And he'd take the hat and he would go like this, and he would say, yeah, you can dig for water there. Now, when Joseph Smith did his own, in his own words, described how he translated the gold plates that the angel of Moroni gave him, said he put a glass in a hat and looked at the plates. And, and I mean, he used the same scam. Um, and so it's possible that, yeah, he just made that whole thing up. That's possible. Or it could have been a demon involved in it. Uh, but yeah, for in the case of Joseph Smith, I, I wonder if he didn't make the whole thing up. Um, but, but maybe he made the whole thing up at the prompting of a demon. Uh, I don't know. <clears throat> um, all right, good, yeah, good point. Um, someday we'll do a comparative religion class here at uh, Hope Bible Church. Yeah, yeah. So in, in yes, in that sense, uh, so it, the the revelations that uh, Muhammad came to uh, claim to have were sometime in the sixth century. So Christianity had been around for centuries by the time Muhammad came on the scene, and there's obviously influences from the true scriptures in the Quran. There's uh, somebody who knew what the Bible said was involved in compiling that thing. Um, but it's obviously, there's massive corruptions uh, of what's in there. Um, it, it's got, you know, just really weird, there's really weird things in there. Um, that, that modern Islamic scholars have real difficulties with because they're obviously, um, uh, uh, obviously false. There's some obvious, uh, some obvious things that they have to explain away. Uh, but there's also obvious influences from the Old and New Testament in, in the Quran. And of course the Book of Mormon, um, you know, they, they, it, it claims to be a succeeding revelation on top of the Old and New Testament. 
but it includes their their translation. They call it a translation of the of the Bible. Includes all kinds of extra stuff in the book of Genesis about Joseph Smith. Uh, so they've added Joseph Smith into the book of Genesis in their translation. Uh, but there there are no ancient copy manuscripts of the Old Testament that include anything about Joseph Smith. Um, they just stuffed it in there. Um, you know, yeah, it's weird. I mean, there's, there's some really bizarre things that people believe. Um, uh, yeah, some twisting of the truth. And so I wouldn't be surprised if there were demons that were involved in that process of deceiving um, Muhammad and Joseph Smith and being at least involved somehow in pushing these false revelations. Or they could have just made it all up. But I wouldn't be surprised if demons were involved in something like that in false religion. Uh, to try to lure people away from the truth. Uh, and it's, they've been spectacularly successful. How many Muslims are there? We're like one billion Muslims in the world? Um, yeah. Uh, at the future point in the world history, idolatry, mysticism, spiritism, Satanism, and all other forms of false religion will become pandemic as demons lead people into more wicked and vicious behavior. So that's what we see here. Uh, and they did not repent of their murders, and nor of their sorceries, nor of their immorality, nor of their theft. So continuing on, unbridled, unrestrained, escalating wickedness. As a result, uh, there's more and more violent crimes like murders. So, of course, we see that in our own society. Uh, murders become worse and worse and worse. Is that a sign that we're coming to these times? I don't know. Um, I don't think we, we're in any of this. We're, we're not in. I mean, the church is still here. The, the sign of the beginning of this tribulation is the rapture of the church. And that hasn't happened, so we're not in this. But we are in a period where things are getting worse, in terms of murders in particular. Um, and so they're bereft of morality. Evil, unrepentant people imitate the demon hordes, murderous bloodlust. Um, and believers, of course, will no doubt be prime targets. Uh, as they lash out to seek revenge for the disasters that God is bringing. Uh, he describes a third sin. So we've had idolatry, murder. Third is sorceries. Uh, the Greek word f that's translated sorceries here is the Greek word from which we get the English words pharmacy and pharmaceuticals. Um, the phar uh, pharmakeia. Uh, can also refer to not just good medicines, but it can also refer to poisons, amulets, charms, seances, witchcraft, incantations, magic spells, contacting mediums, or other things tied to pagan idolatry. So that's a very broad word in the Greek, uh, pharmakeia. Uh, it's much, I mean, they, they, our English word of uh, pharmacy and pharmaceuticals is much more narrow. But that Greek word is much broader, uh, is, is my point here. <clears throat> Uh, people will dive deeper into the satanic trappings of false religion. Uh, the next sin is uh, that they refuse to turn away from his immorality. Uh, it's the Greek word is porneia there, from which we get the English word pornography. And that word porneia in the Greek is a general term uh, describing sexual sin of every variety. Fornication, adultery, rape, homosexuality, all uh, within this Greek word porneia. Uh, so we get sexual perversion. So of course we see that in our own day, but it's not this. This is worse somehow. Uh, finally, people refuse to repent of thefts. That's the fifth one. Um, 
Honesty will be non-existent. People compete for increasingly scarce supplies of food, clothing, water, water and shelter. So under the influence of this massive demon force, uh, the world will descend into a morass of false religion, murder, sexual perversion, and crime, unparalleled in human history. And so we see headlines that things are getting worse, and is this the sign of the end of the uh, end times? Maybe. But it's not this. It, it is not this, because we haven't had the rapture yet. Um, <laughs> Uh, it's a sobering to realize that the Lord will one day come to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds which they have done in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. That's what Jude 15 says. This is, that's what's coming. In light of that coming judgment, it is the responsibility of all believers to faithfully proclaim the gospel to unbelievers, thereby snatching them out of the fire, June 23. So this stuff has not happened yet. We have not gotten to the rapture yet. So what should we be doing now as followers of Christ? Evangelize, proclaiming the gospel. It's much, much better for your unbelieving friends, neighbors, co-workers, and family members to be raptured with us than to live through this. And so that should provide motivation. All of this should provide motivation um, for us to proclaim the gospel to those around us that are headed for this. They're headed for this. They don't see it. It's going to be awful. We don't want them to go through that. We want them to be raptured with us. And so uh, use this as motivation. As you read these words, use it as motivation. All right, any questions? Yeah, she's absolutely right. Uh, uh, thank you for that. It's Alien Intrusion is the name of it. Gary Bates is the author. Alien Intrusion, not Alien Invasion. I apologize. Thank you for that uh, correction. Uh, yeah, because you don't want to read some weird book by by a guy that by somebody that believes in aliens and that the aliens are coming. Um, yeah, yeah. Don't read don't don't read a book called Alien Invasion. Read the book called Alien Intrusion. Alien Intrusion. Make sure it's by Gary Bates. Uh, Gary Bates. Yeah, thank you. Um, any, anybody else? All right, let's close in a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, the opportunity that we have today to share the gospel. Uh, to share the gospel with unbelieving friends and family members and co-workers and neighbors uh, who do not see what's coming. Uh, you've revealed in your word here in the book of Revelation what is coming for unbelievers, what's coming on the unbelieving world. And uh, Lord, please let it be a motivation to us uh, to spread the gospel. Uh, we thank you, Lord, that you have provided a way of redemption and that this is not the fate of everyone, uh, that you have provided a way of redemption through your son, Jesus Christ, for his by his uh, substitutionary atonement on the cross to pay for our sins. We thank you for all that, Lord. We thank you for the opportunity that we're about to have to worship you uh, together as a body of Christ in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and in the preaching of the word and in prayer. We thank you for all that, Lord. And we pray that uh, the worship that we're about to offer will be acceptable in your sight. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.